Welcome to ATBS, the podcast. Thanks for being here. Many have asked me, why ATBS? Really? All things big and small? Yes is the simple answer. I like keeping all my options open. And with this episode, we'll go big. My guest today is Professor Ben Bromley. Ben is a theoretical astrophysicist at the University of Utah. His doctoral work focused on astrophysical cosmology and the large-scale structure of the universe. Does it get any bigger than that? Let's go big with Ben Bromley. Ben, welcome to ATBS, the podcast. I'm so grateful that you are willing to carve out a little time for those of us who need to learn about astrophysics and astronomy and such. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I look forward to it. I find it interesting how these things just evolve. I've I've recorded, I think, 38 episodes of ATBS, the podcast. Some would say that's really, really early in the life of a podcast. And some would say, hey, you've been at it for a good long while. But where I go and who I talk to, and, and somebody said, well, why are you interested in talking to an astrophysicist? I said, well, there's so much out there that we don't know. And I have to be careful in my role to not get caught in a closed loop of information that I'm familiar with, aware of, and curious about. So this would be a really good example of something that I'm not real familiar with, uh, I'm super curious about, and as I've stated, and I'm perfectly willing to admit, a little intimidated. Where do we start, I guess, is the question when talking astronomy and astrophysics. You and I had a precast conversation a week or 10 days ago, and I took a bunch of notes, and I thought you did a really, really nice job of, you know, kind of a historic perspective on where we've been going all the way back to Aristotle, I think. And then where are we, you know, like, how did we get where we are and where are we headed? But I think it would be good to do a little background. Okay, sure. I like to put the whole conversation in the context of any of us uh, walking out into the Utah desert and just looking up at the night sky and trying to make sense of what we see. Um, it, you know, the history from the perspective of someone in astronomy, for me, kind of starts with antiquity, as you mentioned, where people were beginning to figure out that stars were suns like our own sun. For this conversation, I'm going to fast forward to about 100 years ago, which in the grand scheme of human history is, you know, just really a blink of time. We understood at that point that our sun was like many other stars that we see in the night sky. That kind of gave us a sense of our place in the universe. The thing that astronomers were beginning to understand as telescopes became more and more powerful was that there were other things in the universe than, than just the stars that we see. Um, there were these fuzzballs in the night sky which we know now to be galaxies. And it's kind of humbling a little bit that, and makes me you know, proud of us humans. We push forward to understand what those fuzzballs were and we're able to determine that these fuzzy things, galaxies, were much like our own Milky Way galaxy. We can see the stream of stars across the night sky, the Milky Way. Those are a part of the 100 billion stars that make up our own galaxy. And 100 years ago, it wasn't clear if there was anything else 
beyond this kind of island universe that the Milky Way is. We're kind of a swirly, spirally, disc-like thing with stars lying in a flat plane. And we're in that plane. So when we look at the Milky Way itself, we're seeing um, the many, many other stars that lie in the plane along with us. So that kind of defined what we knew 100 plus years ago. These other little fuzzballs that we see in the night sky that telescopes could observe very well could have been just clouds of gas. It was really not clear that they were like our own Milky Way. Um, but there was a great debate that took place a um, hundred years ago where this whole issue of what these fuzzballs were. And we now know that they are galaxies. Each one contains uh, hundreds of billions of stars, good-sized galaxies like our own Milky Way. And these galaxies are spread all over the observable universe. They're distributed to some good approximation uniformly across space. Edwin Hubble added something really incredible to this picture. Hubble mapped out the nearby galaxies, which he demonstrated were galaxies by actually measuring properties of stars near nearby ones. He was able to learn that the further away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. This is a, a really, really tough measurement. It's really hard to figure out how far away things are in astronomy. I mean, you look up at the night sky and you just ask, well, how far away is a star? And for most of human history, we all kind of shrugged. I mean, now we're getting a, a good sense, but even modern astronomers are arguing about distances. So it's really tough to do. But Hubble's overall picture was incredible. Galaxies, the further away they are from us, the faster away they appear to be moving from us. The interpretation of that observation is that we live in a sea of galaxies, which is expanding in time. So galaxies are getting further and further apart because of the overall expansion of space and time, which is you know, just an incredible thing. And one reason that's so incredible is you can run the movie backwards and you can see all the galaxies kind of coalescing toward a very, very dense state where all the matter in the universe was packed in very tightly. And this gave us the foundation of Big Bang cosmology, the idea that at one early time, all matter was concentrated, it was very dense, similarly very, very hot, and the universe expanded and cooled as part of its overall history. And that is Stunning to know because it, we can't talk about the beginning of time in cosmology, but we can talk about very early times when the universe was in a hot, dense state. And that was, you know, 13, 14 billion years ago. So it's really a neat picture, which has evolved only recently in the course of human history. That's exactly what I was hoping for, Ben, as an opener. Like, okay, let's get some big, broad brushstroke information on the table that we can start to get our arms around. I don't know all of my listeners personally, but I suspect many are in a similar boat as me, which is like, okay, I look up at the night sky. I appreciate it. I know where the Milky Way is. I have some sense for a few other things. All right, cool. Ben's going to fill in some of the rest of the picture. Question that I had while you were talking is, and you brought it back to the dense, hot, tightly packed material and then we talk about the Big Bang. Is that generally accepted at this point that that occurred? Yes, that's a great question because you 
clearly and legitimately can ask why we would we would want to really believe in in something like this. People early on when Hubble proposed his results fought this. They didn't believe in a dynamic universe that Hubble observed. Um, Einstein famously thought the universe should be eternal and infinite and static. And he developed the equations of general relativity, which remains our cutting edge understanding of gravity. And in his equations, a dynamic expanding Big Bang universe arose, but he introduced a mathematical term in his beautiful equations of general relativity that prevented the expansion of the universe. It built in some artificial mathematical way a static universe. So when Hubble came along with this idea that the universe is expanding, it was extraordinary. It was revolutionary. It gave a beginning of time, all in quotes, idea to um, the way we view our, our universe. And the subsequent studies of what the Big Bang scenario entails have provided what you could call three pillars of cosmology, three pillars, three ideas that really make this whole picture hold together for us in the context of observations. I'll start with the first, and they're all three very cool, but uh, the first one is the idea if the universe was really, really um, hot and dense back in early times, then the matter in the universe should be like a glowing gas, like what we see on the surface of the sun, just very hot, you know, electrons and protons and things, this particle stew. And there's will be a lot of light, it will be thermal emission there too. As the universe cools and expands, that light bounces around from the protons and electrons and is scattered and creates this soup of photons too. But once the universe cools to the point where the atoms and electrons combine to form atoms like hydrogen, hydrogen gas is invisible to uh, this kind of radiation. And so the photon bath is free to expand in the universe along with everything else. And it won't be messed with by any of the, the normal stuff that we can read off the periodic table, you know, the hydrogen atoms. The photons propagate freely through the universe, and we can actually observe them today. This analogy I'm about to give you is lost on younger audiences, uh, I'm afraid. But uh, back in the day when we had uh, TVs with antennae, we could turn them on. If we were tuned our television to, in my hometown, it was like, you know, channel 19, we would just see snow, just static on the screen. And a good fraction, of a, a few percent, if I remember correctly, of that snow are these cosmic photons from the hot Big Bang, the so-called cosmic microwave background radiation, because photons are mostly in microwaves today. This bath has cooled along with everything else in the expansion of the universe, and we can actually detect them. In the early 60s, two AT&T engineers or scientists actually detected these uh, photons in a microwave detector, and they won a Nobel Prize for it. The rest is history, as they say. We now have seen the echo of this hot Big Bang model in these background photons. This hot bath of photons that's now cool, and we see it in every direction that we look, we can map out in exquisite detail in some parts of the sky the photons that we see, echoes of the Big Bang, are ever so slightly brighter than in other regions. And these bright photons come from regions in the universe 
back in the day, you know, 14 billion years ago, that were ever so slightly overdense. There's slightly higher density of matter, normal stuff, in um, those regions compared to the average of the universe at that time. These overdense regions began to collapse, and they formed the galaxies that we see today. They formed the clusters of galaxies that we see and the cosmic foam um, that we see, the strings and walls of galaxies that are the largest structures known to humans that form uh, what we can now map out um, in terms of the galaxy distribution in the universe. This idea was also revolutionary and constitutes the second pillar of the Big Bang, what people call the large-scale structure of the universe. A researcher, a scientist named Margaret Geller, took the task of mapping galaxies uh, nearby us in the local universe to see how they're distributed. And at that time, astronomers had not detected these little fluctuations in the cosmic bath of photons. So as far as we knew at that time, the distribution of galaxies was uniform. It was sort of the same everywhere. Just, yeah, sorry, I'm, I lack an analogy here at the moment, but um, I'm, I'm thinking of, I usually recourse to the universe being a gigantic, infinite raisin bread. And the galaxies are the little raisins and they're just distributed in this, when the bread rises through, you know, what bread does when you're cooking it, I suppose, um, those raisins get further and further away. And that kind of is a description of the overall expansion. So let's think of the raisins in the, in the raisin bread here. Margaret Geller's idea was to map out these galaxies and see if they were in fact clustered in any surprising way. And she chose a very, very clever strategy for mapping out the galaxies in the nearby universe. She took a slice of the sky and mapped all galaxies within that slice. The idea there is that if you're looking for big structures, if you're looking for things which are enormous and span the size of the sky, don't just concentrate your efforts into small spots of the sky. Look as broadly as you can. And her strategy was to examine a swath a narrow swath across the sky. And indeed, she intercepted a very, very beautiful slice of the universe that contained a great wall of galaxies, the largest structure that we have observed and observed to date. is a very, very beautiful discovery and fits into the picture of the Big Bang because the size of these structures and the clustering that we see in galaxies today is consistent with what we would expect if we started from a very smooth early state of the universe, this hot, dense state with tiny little ripples, in time, those ripples grow and form the clusters of galaxies that we see, the cosmic foam of great walls and strings of galaxies spread across the sky. The concepts are so large, so significant. And then some of the terminology is, is you know, like the foam and the ripples and, the you know, some of the terms, obviously, you know, very uh, understandable. The Great Wall of Galaxies. You know, I'm just writing things down as we go that big smiles and, hmm, okay, let me see if I can grapple with that a little bit. Oh, it's beautiful. You, I urge you to check out images of the original maps from Margaret Geller. They're stunning. You can actually see what looks like a human in the universe, the way the a stick figure almost of galaxies that are spread out. 
Yeah, well, as we always do, we put references and resources in the show notes and we'll make sure that's there because I'm I'm hopeful. If you're listening and you're anything like me, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'd love to go get a, a handle on that. The other phrase that I really like is the cosmic bath of photons. So we're into two pillars. There's a third pillar. And there's a third. <laughs> the large scale structure and the distribution of galaxies fully matches what we expect from the early universe that we envision. And people have really taken this to kind of a new level since Dr. Geller's work. The connection between the large-scale structures, the cosmic foam, and the little tiny ripples that we see in the cosmic photon bath has been made extremely strong. We understand how the little little ripples yield exactly the large-scale structures that we observe today. And numerical simulation has helped a lot in, in that effort. So on to the third pillar. The final thing that we need to understand is what the universe is made of. The periodic table that you see contains many, many elements. Favorites for all of us should be among hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon, and nitrogen, all integral to life as we know it. However, the picture of a hot Big Bang did not come with all these elements in place. In fact, if you think of what happens when you kind of run the picture back in time is you got this hot, dense state, all the nuclei that form carbon atoms wouldn't have been able to hold together in the very, very high temperatures of the very early universe. So early on, we started even with this subatomic particle physics stew, and uh, none of the, of the elements in the periodic table you know, at least as atoms, are observed or were present at that time. So when you run the picture forward, the subatomic particles kind of condense out and form uh, protons and neutrons. And as the universe continued to cool, some of uh, the other light elements managed to survive, like helium nuclei survive and isotopes of helium. A little bit of lithium was also in the mix. So these light elements were part of the early universe. And it's another, you know, go human kind of moment. People were actually able to figure out the ratio of these light elements that the universe would have had after it expanded and cooled with all the subatomic particles forming these protons and, and helium nuclei and lithium going forward. So we're actually able to look at very, very pristine pockets of gas in the universe in around the Milky Way and other galaxies and infer that these so-called primordial abundances of light elements match the predictions of the Big Bang theory. There's a certain ratio of helium atoms to hydrogen atoms that's predicted by the model. It's actually observed. It's really quite stunning. We're able, with this picture of a hot Big Bang, to understand what the universe was made of in terms of the periodic table. And by the way, there was nothing like carbon or nitrogen or oxygen. All that stuff had to come from the interior of stars where a thermonuclear fusion kind of cooked that up. The interior of those stars got spread out into the universe through supernova explosions, which we see today. That's sort of a different story. Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, 
I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. So a couple questions that I'll just interject because I'm sure there are places that you'd like to go and, and I'll follow along. And I'm just going to sprinkle these questions throughout because I've asked some other people like, look, if you had a chance to talk to Ben, what would you ask him? And one of those questions is from a friend of mine, from your perspective, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions that lay people have about astronomy, about the universe, about these things that we're talking about? Like maybe things that we know that people think we don't know or things that we don't know that people assume we do know. I don't know. You know, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions might be? That's a great question. And I'm not really sure what people take away from these ideas. For me, it's very, very hard to wrap around what the universe actually is and what it actually means to say the universe. You know, what are we talking about? I mean, if you think about the early days of astronomy where the Milky Way itself was believed to be all there was, we didn't really know what those fuzzballs of galaxies um, were. There was no hard evidence they were actually bundles of stars like our own Milky Way. The universe then was kind of like this island, you know, we're all sitting here. What was outside that? It's a real kind of legitimate question. And, you know, another thing that gets added to that when Hubble came along was there's a finite age to the universe. If you run the movie backwards, everything kind of comes together at 13 or 14 billion years from earlier than the present. And you know what was before that? These are tough questions and kind of have to be asked in the context of the overall picture of the universe that we have and the limitations of the physics that we understand. The time one is easier for me. That says that when you run the movie backwards, our understanding of physics breaks down at a certain very, very early time. And we can't really say anything more than that. You know, to extrapolate to the past beyond that is really out of our domain. A similar thing is kind of true for the extent of the universe. If I had to guess, I'd say the universe is infinite in extent. I hardly know what that means. What we really can say is that the part of the observable universe that we live in acts like an infinite universe with certain properties, which we can go into later. But those ideas are, I think, the hardest for all of us, amateurs and pros, to kind of wrap around. That's helpful, because when we first started talking, and, and I think I left you a message, which was, you know, can we talk about the universe or, or something like that? And when you came back and left me another message, look, we don't really, like, how do we define that? You know, how are we defining universe? How are we defining what's out there? And if I heard you accurately, as we play the movie backwards, we can get to a certain point. And beyond that, we just don't know. We don't have the tools to even to measure, to distinguish. And our heads aren't capable really of getting around that yet. Yet. I'm totally with you. Yeah, beautifully said. I'm a practitioner of some different energy practices, certainly yoga, certainly meditation, qigong, energy work, right? Like, and, and, you know, when one meditates and we can talk about it in a lot of different terms, but there is a certain resonance. There's a certain vibration 
there's a certain some would say that you know om om is like the primordial sound of the universe or of you know something resonating some frequency some vibration and you know when i think about what when i'm listening to you it seems as though there is energy and there's frequency and there's vibration pretty much everywhere it seems to me that you know again i'm total lay person right but i'm hopeful that there's kind of a universal vibration hmm yes what what do you think ben <laughs> yeah that that's a, i have to confess a little little bit out of my depth but i hope that as we talk you'll make a different connection with energy in particular yeah got it, got it. <laughs> also i love your mention of ohm mm. also <laughs> mm. when we do it when we practice it 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 feels like we yeah, I mean, when you drop in, it, it very definitely feels like you connect to some greater source and some connection to a greater whole. I don't know what that is, right? I'm not prepared to try and identify that, but I will stay in my lane as an astrophysicist also. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing us through the, you know, kind of the three pillars that support the idea that the Big Bang occurred. I just have some notes here and I don't know where it starts to fit in to the the um, chronology, if that's in fact accurate, where we start talking about dark matter and dark energy and things that have been discovered since Hubble, if my notes are correct, right? Yes, yes. So if it's all right, I will push forward with the uncertainties now in what we have in our view of the universe compared to what we know. The hot big bang idea is secure, but there are real issues. And you mentioned energy and ohm, and I'm kind of kidding in this, but one aspect of this whole story is related to a variable, a mathematical variable, which astronomers uh, denote with the symbol omega. So I'll leave it with that and push forward. So let's uh, go back to the 20s. Hubble has proposed the expansion of the universe. Einstein's idea in creating a perfect universe that was static and infinite was to have a mathematical symbol, a lambda, represent an outward expansion of the universe that opposed the inward collapse caused by the gravitational interaction between the constituents of the universe, the galaxies. Even though we're in an expanding universe, these things do gravitationally attract each other. That's why they form the great walls and cosmic foam and, and clusters and superclusters. In fact, gravity is why galaxies form at all out of this uh, smooth cosmic stew. So Einstein had this idea, this cosmological constant that helped him build a perfect ideal universe. Hubble trashed that. Hubble found the expansion of the universe, which were natural outcomes of Einstein's original theory of general relativity. And Einstein called the introduction of the cosmological constant his greatest mistake. Were I to have such a great mistake, because it will re-enter our understanding of the universe. So let's go to 1933. At that time, uh, as part of mapping out the universe, people were looking at how galaxies were organized in the universe. They hadn't, of course, gotten to the level of Margaret Geller, but in the 1930s, people understood that there were clusters of galaxies. And in one famous study, an astronomer, Fritz Zwicky, 
looked at a cluster of galaxies, saw how fast those galaxies were moving around, because you can tell how fast things are going easily in astronomy. You just look to see if their light is shifted toward the blue or shifted toward the red. And this is a Doppler effect. So very similar to what we experience with, say, cars or trains coming towards us in a way. The frequency of sound is high when things are coming towards us and drops off when they fall away. I won't do it for you, but if you want to have a go at it. The the same thing happens with light. Um, High-frequency light tends to be bluer. Low-frequency light tends to be redder. And we can tell easily how fast things are moving away from us. So Fritz Zwicky looked at this cluster of galaxies, knew how what the velocities of these galaxies were, and he inferred from the fact that these things weren't flying apart because they were moving at you know hundreds of kilometers per second uh, relative to each other, the fact that this cluster hung together at all required a certain amount of mass to hold this whole tight group together. And he also knew how many stars there were because he could see them. They were They were bright. You can see stars in galaxies and you can count up how much mass there is in stars. And there was not nearly enough mass to hold the galaxy cluster together. And that was the first bit of evidence that the universe contains some unseen matter, dark matter, as it's come to be known. Evidence for dark matter increased over time. In the the 70s, an astronomer, Vera Rubin, beautifully mapped out the motion of stars in galaxies, how fast they're moving on their circular orbits around the center of stars. And she very, very clearly demonstrated that there was dark matter in galaxies. Um, And that dark matter was distributed not in the central regions of galaxies, but as part of a bigger picture. They're in the outer regions of galaxies and part of the overall distribution of mass in the universe. And when I was a graduate student, in the 80s and it's going to span the 80s and 90s, we believed that most of the universe was dark matter. Like 99% of the universe is a number I recall is made up of dark matter, stuff that's not part of the periodic table. So really different from material that we're familiar with here on Earth. And the biggest difference, of course, is that stuff on the periodic table made of neutrons, protons, and electrons interacts with light. We actually see it when we look out in space. Dark matter, by definition, has nothing to do with interactions with photons. Light can travel through the universe. We can observe what we will, and we just won't see uh, the dark matter directly. So um, we've come to be very comfortable with this idea in astronomy that there is dark matter, but people do so in that comfort with some edginess because we don't really know what it is. In fact, let me make that stronger. We do not know what dark matter is. There are some beautiful ideas that dark matter is related to extensions of our picture of the way fundamental particle physics works, but we do not have compelling evidence or a compelling identity or dark matter. So that's a huge mystery. The vast majority of matter, of stuff in the universe, is dark matter. The mathematical symbol omega denotes the mass density of the universe in in some units, and omega dark matter is much bigger by a factor of of six-ish than the omega for normal stuff, omega periodic table. The astronomers call that omega baryons. So this is a principal mystery. 
or astronomy. And, you know, it's kind of amazing. We just don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. But we generally accept we can put a label on it. And I've said this many times in different different contexts that we as humans, you know, we love to measure and we love to label. And, and in a lot of cases, there's very good reason for that. So here we are with dark matter as a label. There is no definition. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that is really cool. And, you know, humans being humans, we're doing really, really clever things to try and identify it. We're looking for very, very weak interactions between dark matter particles and themselves, hoping that when dark matter is really concentrated, we'll see some, you know, bizarre glow in high energy photons, gamma rays. We're looking for dark matter that whaps into atoms here in big experiments in mines here on earth, you know, filled with, um, tanks of, of xenon that kind of sit around and are monitored very precisely looking for rare interactions. And we hope to find some evidence for dark matter that way. But you know what? There's nothing compelling yet. Nothing compelling. So can I ask about the majority of what is out there, and I put that in quotation marks, air quotes, is dark matter. And we don't know, we can't define dark matter. Does dark matter include dark energy or are we just not there yet? Not quite, not quite there yet. So the only other thing I wanted to say about dark matter is that people have thought that its existence, if you will, the evidence for it might not be evidence for something different from normal stuff, normal things that you read off the periodic table, but that we just don't understand gravity well. And that's a possibility. The evidence for dark matter is mostly gravitational. We infer its existence in galaxies because we track stars moving around we know how much mass is required to move them in the way that we see them. And we know how much mass there is in stars and gas and normal stuff because we can measure that. And we take the difference to mean, well, there must be dark matter. What if we didn't exactly understand how gravity worked? That would go all the way to explaining that there isn't a dark matter. We just don't know. You know we just have to modify our ideas about gravity. Um, but do we actually have a definition of gravity at this point? We have a really, really, really good working model for how gravity works. It's general relativity from Einstein. Okay, so that holds. That holds. And there is one kind of poster child system that really, really supports the dark matter idea. And that is known as the bullet cluster. What we have in the universe, we see two clusters of galaxies kind of colliding with each other. And... Clusters of galaxies have three components, a large amount of dark matter, a lot of hot gas, and a bunch of galaxies. And when you collide these two clusters, as they come together from their mutual gravity, the galaxies are interspersed in space, so they won't have a high chance of colliding with each other, but the hot gas pancakes hot gas just runs into it, and so most of the mass that we see, the normal stuff pancakes together and collides and forms even hotter, denser regions than in the individual clusters. The dark matter part, though, won't be interacting with anything except through gravity. And we can actually track by looking at its gravitational impacts on things around it. We can track that the dark matter cores of these clusters just go right through each other as expected. That is not a statement that we don't understand gravity. That's a really clear statement that we understand it and that there's this stuff that we can actually track 
in terms of its motion through the universe. In my mind, and in, in many people's minds, the most compelling reason to believe that dark matter is its own thing and that we do understand gravity in this overall picture. Did that make sense? Sorry if that wasn't clear. It does. So much of this is mysterious, right? And it's new. Much of it is new to me. Some of it I'm a little bit familiar with. I had made a note about the, and I went and did just a little bit of research to remind myself on September 14th of 2015, when there was a physical measurement of an undulation in space-time caused by gravitational waves generated by two colliding black holes 1.3 billion light years away. Like there was a measurement of gravitational waves, which seems to be kind of a seminal moment. Does that make any sense? Does that fit in here at all? Or does that not fit in here? That is absolutely right. You know, this is a really important and fundamental validation of general relativity. Although the range of gravity, the strengths of gravity that we're talking are vastly different, that general relativity works so well on these scales is extremely important. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice call. So, uh, you know, bullet clusters, and I guess we were in the kind of the, like chronologically, we were in the 80s and 90s, you, you know, as a graduate student, and what was generally held, beliefs that were generally held that much of what's out there is dark matter, right? Yes. Then comes, for me, a personal moment. Um, I was a graduate student, a bit shy, and I got up the courage at a meeting to ask Margaret Geller, who was famous, what she thought of these theoretical models where the universe is filled with dark matter. And she just looked at me with disdain and shook her head and said, it's not like that at all. The universe has far less dark matter than the theorists think. And I just walked away, okay, uh, Margaret Geller is an observer. She's measured the sky in this way and like, okay, and that's it. And of course she was right. Um, as uh, we proceeded over the next decade and mapped out the universe uh, much more carefully, looking at how galaxies cluster, mapping out the expansion of the universe, measuring things that are very, very far away from us and seeing in detail how quickly they're, they're moving away. We, came to understand that there's a whole new component to the universe, that there isn't as much dark matter as we originally thought. There's still a lot, much more than normal stuff, things um, that you can read off the periodic table, but it isn't the whole picture. There's this additional thing, which we've come to call dark energy, that's driving an expansion of the universe. Things are actually being pulled together by their mutual gravity, but there's this overall tendency for distant points in the universe to increasingly get pushed further and further apart from each other. So the universe is in this sense accelerating in its expansion. And that is dark energy. And that should have a little bit of a familiar ring to it. Einstein's cosmological constant, his lambda term, his addition to his beautiful equations of general relativity, which he called his greatest mistake, has risen again. It is the entity that mathematically describes this acceleration. And we don't want to just say, well, there's a, a lambda to the, the equations of general relativity that, that govern the entire universe. We're like, it's got to be a thing, right? So lambda is associated with a physical entity known as dark energy. 
And that's kind of where we are today. We don't really know what dark energy is. We're fairly certain of its impacts on the overall expansion of the universe as we measure it by comparing distances and speeds of very distant objects. But uh, yeah, we're just stuck with having to add it to, um, I don't know, do two items, make a list, uh, dark matter, and, and what we really don't understand that's important for the overall picture of our universe. Okay, so I tried to get my head around this between our conversation, you know, whatever that was, seven or eight days ago, and now there's what seems to be a very large percentage of what is that makes up the universe that makes up what's out there that we have labels for but we don't have definitions of and that would be dark matter and dark energy and i thought i heard you say the last time that that's something like it's close to 100 percent of what's out there it's like in the high 90 how much don't we know I guess that's how much we don't know shit is what it sounds like to me. <laughs> but, but we do know so much. It's a bit of a conundrum. I love it. Let's see if I can get you uh, the top of the line numbers. From memory, the universe is a few percent normal stuff. Periodic table stuff. Things that we, yeah, got it. Periodic table stuff. Then um, roughly 26% dark matter. And the balance, which would be 70% dark energy. And that's just a snapshot of where we are today. And these contributions have technical meaning. So it's dark energy is not matter. It's not, you know, it's not stuff that's got its own gravity. Like if it were, we just call it uh, dark matter. But if we had to divide up the universe in terms of these constituents, that's kind of the breakdown. So all but a few percent of the stuff that's important to the, the overall dynamics of the universe its expansion is not understood <laughs> and i imagine that must keep you coming back every day <laughs> yeah. you know like what we don't know you're in academia right so you're teaching or you're in a part of a department that's teaching you know other people what we do know and and teaching what we don't know but what keeps you coming back what what would you like to see solved in your lifetime Okay, let's how to approach this. This is a great question. First of all, it's it I consider it an, an honor and an extraordinary privilege to be able to study this stuff for work. And and I I focus mostly on planets these days, but in in doing the job, you have to keep in mind that the distances are so vast and the kinds of objects that we're talking about are so far outside our human experience that it's kind of hard to wrap one's mind around what they are to really comprehend them and embrace the scales and magnitude of these entities, these cosmic entities. For me, that plays out is I just work with the numbers on the day-to-day basis, you know, just ah, you know, throw around uh, huge orders of magnitude things, 10 to the 27 grams, for example, which is the size of the planet earth the mass of the planet earth is like i have no idea what 10 to the 27 of anything is you know 10 followed by 27 zeros is okay uh, but i'm very used to it and i think that's true for cosmologists people are just used to it the day to day for me every 5 years or so i just get the heebie-jeebies about all of it like wow i just this is amazing i just don't understand what's going on what is this thing that we live in and does that freak you out? I mean, like when you get the heebie-jeebies every five years, do you go to the desert? Do you, like, what do you, what do, you do <laughs> to, to recalibrate and go, okay, 
I'm going to settle back into this unknowing and, and discovering. I just say, meh, it passes. I'm back to the simulations. Yeah, okay. I gotcha. <laughs> I, hate, I hate to be so undramatic, but I, you know, we just have to have to keep going. But it's super fun. It's yeah, it's it's so fascinating that you know there's so much that we don't know, and and there's so much that you don't know, and and if I could ask or have the answer to any question, and I thought about this this uh, a bit, if I could get the answer to any question, I definitely put it off because things things change enough. I mean, I, I thought about this uh, uh, when I was younger, when I was a graduate student. If I could know one thing, what would it be? And I thought the identity of dark matter was something that cropped into my head. And then, you know, I thought, well, I could be really, really disappointed, right? Dark matter could be some exotic particle that was an extension of uh, supersymmetric models. And that's really, really cool and would really help our understanding of physics. But at some level, I would just be okay. So it is a particle and that's great. Right. And then back to work. <laughs> back to work. And then I would have missed the whole idea of uh, dark energy because at that time, dark energy wasn't a, wasn't a thing yet. Uh, people hadn't really put together this overall expansion, acceleration of the universe. So we really didn't know. So I'm not sure what we don't know yet. I'm not sure what we'll find out about the acceleration of the universe, what we'll find out about dark matter. So I'm going to wait if that's okay. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I'm going to use an analogy and, and I wonder if it holds here. So I, I, you know, I'm at the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City on a regular basis, um, you know, every three weeks, actually. And I have a wonderful oncologist, wicked smart guy. I've got a tremendous amount of respect for him and, and we have a great relationship. And he makes no bones about the fact about this, what he'll, he'll say, Jeff, this is fact, that today we know about 10% of what we'll know in 10 years as it relates to oncology. Right. Like, in other words, we know very little. We're working on it and things are happening at a really rapid pace in, in the world of cancer. Although many would say, really, um, like it seems like we're at 1964 and nothing's changed, but lots has changed. And so, you know, but he'll be the one he says that, right? Like today we know, you know, five or 10 percent of what we'll know 10 years from now. I I am totally with you. Yes. And. It's, it's true compared to important and exciting fields like oncology. I'm glad you're connected with someone so good. Yeah, we're glacially slow. <laughs> but that's the right thing, right? We want the progress in this century of biology to be like this. And therein lies the interesting thing. We don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And then somebody says, well, yeah, but here's this telescope or here's what I've measured. And I think knowing is also a very interesting concept, right? Like, what we don't know, we don't believe, or we don't believe could be true. Or, and then once somebody says that we do know, then it can be accepted generally as truth or as something. I, you know, all those things are labels and all of them are pretty interesting to me. But I totally agree. You ask all the right questions like, what proof do we have or why do we believe in the hot big bang? Because that's, you know, that's a stunning thing. Right. <laughs> you know, our experiences, yeah. We're like Einstein. We look out at the night sky. It's like, yeah, it's been like that my whole life. It's probably going to be like that forever. That's not <laughs> the way it works. <laughs> Although I think we as humans, we'd like things to be static, right? Like we don't like change. Yes, that's right. 
And and that's a fascination too, because everything's changing. Like I, you know, somebody once said, "You don't have to hope for change; it's coming." Oh gosh, I wish things would change. Yeah, just wait a minute; it'll be fine. It'll change. Um, where would you? You know, we're right at about an hour, which we don't have any. Uh, as I said, guardrails are low here. And I guess before we go any further, is universe an acceptable term? Yeah, it is. I I balked it on on, on the the voicemail, but yeah, it's perfect. I mean, just describing everything beyond us, you know, encompassing the whole. And if we qualify it to mean um, in astronomy and astrophysics as limited by what we can actually observe or understand, then I'm totally totally done with it. Here's another question for you. Listeners are out there going, "Hmm, I'd like to go learn more or like, what are some of the things that you might suggest just from a expand your mind, expand what you know as a layperson? what would be good for people to go look at? Like, you know, images of great walls and foamy matter. And, and like, I don't know, like what, what would be good for people to go and, and check out from your perspective? That That's a great question. And I'm not as up on this as I should be, but NASA always has wonderful, I mean, amazing information and imagery as related to astronomy, as related to cosmology, the study of the overall picture of the universe. So I highly recommend NASA websites. And if you, by any remote chance, get bored with the cosmological stuff, the way galaxies cluster as shown in studied by the by Hubble Space Telescope, then also check out some of NASA's other amazing uh, missions. The mission to the Pluto-Charon binary, you know, on Pluto in the solar system. It's just incredible. And the images from the Cassini mission of Saturn's rings are just stunning. These are just sort of station breaks on the, on the path to dark energy and dark matter. I love these, and, and they just are loud indicators of how amazingly diverse and beautiful the universe that we live in actually is. And we don't even need to go that far. Saturn's our neighbor planet, or a neighboring planet. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, because here you are, like, we don't even have to go that far. We can just go to Saturn. We live in this wonderful experience we call life, and some of us would go, yeah, you can go outside and look at a tree, or yeah, but Saturn's right there, too. We can look at that as well. <laughs> I love it. Just a plug for Saturn's rings. If you want something really cool and, and remarkable, one of the rings, the A ring, is 100,000 miles in radial extent from the center of the planet. And it's like a, one of those aeroby Frisbee disks. And it's wide. It's like tens of thousands of miles wide, if, if I'm not mistaken. And yet the thickness of the thing, it's incredibly flat. And it's incredibly narrow. The thickness is like you could you could barely hide a school bus in it. You know, it's like tens of yards. It's unbelievable. So this immense plane of stuff. And what makes it up? Almost pure water ice, just like pebbles or balls of ice, maybe basketball size. We're not really certain, but it's just just unbelievable. This <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Like they're oh specifics. Like go check that out. Because all of it is marvelous, right? Like this life that we get to lead, live, this experience of being human. And then, you know, it can be as simple as walking down a path and being connected to, you know, the ground and the earth. And it's incredible that we get to have this experience. And then, oh my gosh, then we can have this conversation. And it's incredible what's going on 
out there and can be observed. The things that can be observed now due to all the things that you've talked about, you know, telescopes and, and that we, the layperson, get to go and look is spectacular. Right? All it takes is a little curiosity and a little interest. You're absolutely right. Uh, if you have more specific to cosmology, I would also put a plug in to the Dark Energy Survey website. It's a premier survey that's upcoming. One of my colleagues at the University of Utah, Kyle Dawson, is integrally involved in it. Um, it is it will help map out uh, uh, galaxies with the goal of really getting precise about the expansion of the universe and really understanding the universe on large scales. That's what I'm very hopeful for going forward. There's incredible instrumentation and studies coming online now, uh, both in space and here on the surface of our planet, which will help push this story forward. And we're really going to a new level in terms of the amount of data and the extent to which we're mapping out the universe that we're living in. Yeah, I'm amazed. I, I love it. I'll put some of these resources into the, into the show notes because in our earlier conversation, we talked about some of the other people you just mentioned. You just mentioned Kyle and his project, and then Anil is working on the Dark Skies project. And, you know, there are other people within your department, and I'm always amazed. Like, all I did was pick up the phone and leave a message for you, and here you are. You know, we're, we live about 30 miles apart, and, you know, right there at the University of Utah, you're doing doing great work, and lots of people doing great work. So I suspect this won't be the last conversation here on ATBS, the podcast, having to do with astronomy and astrophysics and so grateful that you're willing to help the lay person myself to start with and listeners beyond to have some understanding of what's going on around us in the big universe i'm grateful well thank you for having me it's super fun to talk about this it's amazing that we're able to do so i appreciate it i hope my listeners appreciate it i look forward to continuing dialogue and maybe understanding a little better the difference between an observer and a theorist which I, I think I kind of get, but but I've got that note here. I'm like, okay, which, okay, I got it. There's way more to dig into. I agree. Thank you so much for the great questions and the opportunity to talk about the stuff as, yeah, I can't, yeah, I just can't express how cool it really is and how, how fun it is that we've gotten to where we have as humans. It's great. It is great. That's, and it's such a positive note. So Ben, thank you for joining me on ATBS podcast. And, and I look forward to future conversations and, and sharing this one out with the world here in a couple of weeks. Me too. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to a mind-bending ATBS episode with Ben Bromley. This independent podcast is produced by me and Wyatt Schmidt, original artwork and music by Wyatt Schmidt. And your support means so much to me. I thank you very much. Until next time, think big picture. Think big picture.